0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Climate Mahal. I'm Zuba Masood, the show's host. Today's episode will focus on what happened at COP28, the loss and damage fund, climate finance and the Just Energy Transition Partnerships. Basically, anything and everything related to COP and what this means for Pakistan. To get some insights, I spoke to Maha Kamal, a climate policy specialist. We both followed major outcomes of COP28 and she had some pretty interesting things to say. Hi Maha, how are you today? I'm
1: good, thank you, Tuba.
0: Um, as you know, we've gotten together today to talk about COP. I'd like to start off with what has come out of COP. For example, the loss and damage, climate finance. Could you like briefly touch up on these areas and update me?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So first of all, there's been a lot of excitement around COP. It's one of the biggest COPs uh, for for history. Uh, Specifically, uh, the highlights, uh, I I would say, are that the Loss and Damage Fund was operationalized. That is a fund that developing countries, the Global South, as they're uh, colloquially called, had been pushing on for about, it's COP28, so about 28 years in the making. Uh, that uh, countries had been pushing for specifically uh, as part of climate justice, the fact that the damage uh, thanks to climate change and as we know uh, the fact is that developed countries unfortunately had been contributing uh, historically to the carbon emissions right Uh, and so it makes sense that uh, we have a fund that actually counts for uh, the fact that it it really needs to um, account for the damage caused and the fact is that this isn't covered by mitigation and adaptation and so Mm -hmm. specific fund that's uh, there to account for the loss as a result of uh, climate change. Now, the problem, however, is that only 700 million was pledged to this fund so far. That's about 0.2% of what's actually needed, right? So statistics show that what we actually need uh, to account for this is actually uh, greater than $400 billion a year, right? Uh, So compared to that, this is peanuts. So that has been criticized, but at least there's the glimmer of hope that at least it's been operationalized. Um, And really the fact is that these initial pledges really pale in comparison to what's actually needed the fact that uh, there has been this 30-year delay in actually establishing the fund then we know that there are these meager contributions from affluent nations specifically mm-hmm. the fact is that uh, countries like the us for example um has been historically the, the biggest polluter right uh, and so they've only contributed peanuts to what's actually needed so that's what the criticism is to loss and damage
0: Maha, you just said a lot of big numbers. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Did you say $400 million?
1: So the estimates, so the upper estimate does suggest $400 billion okay. a year. Actually, estimates have varied between $100 billion to $580 billion, depending who you talk to. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's $400 billion a year, according to most uh, okay. uh, estimates.
0: Also, there's this thing that I, I kept seeing. Um, it's the Just Energy Transition Partnership. Could you Could you also tell me a bit about that, please?
1: Sure. Okay. so first, let's get into the definition of what we actually mean by Mm -hmm. this just energy transition, right? So what is actually meant by this is the fact that when we are moving towards this low carbon economy, the fact that uh, we're trying to phase out greenhouse gas emissions, uh, trying to move away from fossil fuel, going towards greener sources of energy, that's what we know as the energy transition, right? But the fact of the matter is that uh, this is going to harm some communities. Right. For example, Historically, there might be communities that are dependent on fossil fuels, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's one of the problems that we see. Uh, uh, the other problem that is uh, primarily linked to the just energy transitions depends who you talk to. So the problem that we see when we talk about climate justice is that uh, it's linked to all systems of oppression. So mm-hmm. when we take what we call this intersectional approach, we really need to look at the entire system of oppression And climate change is then the pinnacle and like the symptom of these systems of oppression. Uh, Like, for example, uh, you may link it to unfettered capitalism that actually caused climate change to begin with. Right. And so if you use that definition about what is going to be just, then we really need to make it inclusive. We really need to make it fair. We need to take into account that there are going to be decent work opportunities created, uh, and, and so that's what we mean by just energy, uh, just energy transition, right? And this partnership is basically uh, uh, h- historically we've seen that they're a financing mechanism primarily uh, in order to fund this energy transition, uh, and, and so we've seen this come out of COP 26. That was when it first was first announced that we needed this just energy uh, transition partnership. And at COP28, we've seen the needle move on this regard as well. So the committees have actually met, have drawn what needs to be done regarding this. So there've already been pilot projects. For example, Vietnam, may we saw um, this actually play out very well, and so that was a success story, and that was uh, that's been highlighted at COP28 as well. And on the next, uh, what we need to do um, as we move forward. So countries have been pledging this as part of this partnership.
0: That's really interesting. Thanks for explaining that, because I was really wondering, like, what has been going on at COP and what's going on besides just loss and damage? And this really puts things in perspective for me. So, Maha, my next question is actually about Pakistan's stance at COP28. Uh, I believe the prime minister announced $77 million for Recharge Pakistan, which is essentially to use nature-based solutions to help adapt to climate change. Can you tell me a little about this? What What is Recharge Pakistan and what, what can we do?
1: Absolutely. So first of all, I think it was very wise of the Pakistan delegation, specifically the Prime Minister of Pakistan, to actually announce this at COP28. Uh, the project was actually approved uh, back in July and then operationalized and started we operationalize in August, and this is part of what we call uh, a project under the Green Climate Fund. Uh, you've probably heard of it as part of climate finance. And so yep. it's really encouraging that this is the sixth project for Pakistan under the Green Climate Fund. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically in, in a. operation. The way it's operationalized is the fact that about $66 million has been committed under the GCF, which is the Green Climate Fund. And then okay. we have the WWF, USAID, um, and uh, basically USA, WWF, uh, and basically uh, a Coca-Cola Foundation. These are the three who, are, who decided to co-finance this. So you need to be an accredited body in order to be able to get GCF funding. And WWF played that role uh, and kind of mobilized everyone um, in order to make it happen. So it's great news for Pakistan. And it's a big step uh, in order to move towards uh, fighting and combating climate change, specifically uh, taking into account the fact that you're going to use nature-based solutions and are going to help ecosystems adapt. Uh, And so they're primarily targeting the Indus Basin, and they're trying to make it more resilient against climate change uh, and trying to protect the vulnerable people in the area. Uh, And so this project is great news and a really It shows the urgency of collective action, which the prime minister highlighted as well.
0: Okay, that sounds interesting. Just elaborating a little bit on this, can you tell me exactly what do you think was Pakistan's leadership's vision for climate change on both a national and global level? Also, could you give some insights on how prepared Pakistan was for COP this year? So that's a very
1: good question. I, I think uh, part of the what was uh, the focus of COP28 is the fact that this is supposed to be what we call this global stock take, right? Uh, what Pakistan had pledged earlier as part of our nationally determined contributions, which is our NDC, uh, what we've pledged to climate is pretty ambitious to begin with. Um, and uh, as you know, for example, we committed that we're going to be moving 60% towards renewable energy, for example. So that's a big number for Pakistan uh, by 2030. Um, and considering that we're already almost in the 2024 uh, we're not that close to reaching this goal Um, so but uh, obviously the fact of the matter remains that Pakistan when it comes to mitigation efforts we contribute negligible amounts uh, in in the global greenhouse gas emissions uh, CO2 specifically Uh, though when it comes Mm -hmm. to that um and that's okay if you're not even moving the needle that much on renewable energy, we should, and that's what the direction should be. But for Pakistan, the main vision is of course, adaptation. That's what our GCF projects have also been focused on, uh, trying to make sure that uh, our communities are resilient, that uh, like recharge Pakistan, for example, is part of what we call the living in this framework, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's what our vision has been, securing climate finance in order to um, make sure that we're meeting our adaptation challenges, uh, and not only adaptation, but also the unfortunately uh, the loss and damage that we are currently suffering and are forecasted to suffer in the future.
0: Hmm, that was really interesting, Maha. I think I think I want to get into this a little more. There's this this other thing that I kept hearing about, which was phase out and phase down debate, which I believe is complicated by the fact that the terms haven't like no one has agreed on any definitions of the terms. Could you first explain what these terms mean and which specific countries are opting for phasing out and phasing down? Also, what options are presented in the latest draft of COP28's agreement regarding the phasing out of fossil fuels and what challenges do these options pose?
1: So uh, let's take it a step back first and understand why we even have these COPs to begin with. And that's going to link towards what we mean by phase out and phase down. Uh, so essentially, why the world meets um, every year for COP is to basically see how far we're going towards meeting our crucial 1.5 degree temperature limit, the fact that we want to keep global surface temperatures uh, in the lim- in the safe limit of 1.5 degrees. And we really want to prevent uh, clim- uh, this uh, climate break down what we say. And so if we're going to keep this goal of 1.5 degree alive, we really need to focus on what we call a phase out of fossil fuels. What we mean by phase out is that we really need to eliminate fossil fuels. What we mean by fossil fuels is coal, oil and gas so we really need to phase out in order to keep within the safe limit of 1.5 degrees and the science is clear on it if you look at the uh, the forecast from for example the international energy agency uh, it's pretty clear that we really need to move away from fossil fuels and eliminate them that would that's what we mean by phase out now the problem is COP, of course, is part of climate diplomacy as well, right? And, And so we have different blocks that are formed and the block that is opposing this terminology of phasing out is, of course, the oil and gas producing countries, specifically the lobby that we call OPEC. Right. Uh, And OPEC as an as an organization uh, is is really in opposition to this phase out because they say that perhaps we can use technologies like carbon capture and storage and try to capture the emissions that are going to Mm -hmm. come out of fossil fuels. Now, the problem with that is even if you are trying to control the the emissions that are coming out from just taking oil and gas out of the ground, that doesn't eliminate the fact that that oil and gas is going to be burned and that itself is going to be causing its own emissions, right? Uh, and so that's the deadlock oh, yeah. that this COP actually reached that perhaps we can, instead of saying phase out of fossil fuels, perhaps mm-hmm. we should use a weaker term, a phase down uh, to basically say that we really need to um, not really... Uh, eliminate fossil fuels Mm -hmm. completely. Or the proposal that was presented was the fact that they can say fossil fuel emissions instead of saying fossil fuels, right? Again, that would bring that carbon capture and storage into account as Mm -hmm. well. And so that's what OPEC is pushing for. And they're trying to water down, phasing uh, out uh, fossil fuels completely. Uh, And so there are different language uh, options that are presented in order to counter this um,
0: challenge. Wow, it's so interesting to see how just just a few words can make such an impact from phasing down to phasing out and from fossil fuels to fossil fuel emission. It's it's fa- really fascinating. And, you know, it is this these subtle changes that really put things into context for me.
1: Absolutely. Uh-huh. And that's something, sorry, just to add, uh, this is something that recurs in COPS. For example, in Glasgow, uh, in COP26, we were almost uh, in the same phase where mm-hmm. the language had to be eliminating fossil fuels. But last mm-hmm. minute, they decided that, no, this was too strong of a statement that perhaps we shouldn't use those words, right? And, and so this is something that recurs time and time again Uh, again the problem is that this is part of like uh, uh, every country represents different interests and then it's not just countries and states then you have different organizations this COP specifically uh, has been criticized for having the uh, about 2500 delegates who represent fossil fuel industry right and Mm -hmm. so of course the Uh, Some arguments suggest that, oh, these people, since they're going to be the biggest stakeholders in actually phasing out uh, fossil fuel, they should Mm -hmm. be part of the conversation. But uh, they're not just part of the conversation. There's lobbying going on, trying to make sure that you exert pressure to ensure that that isn't really hurt, right? And so that Mm -hmm. makes things complicated.
0: You know, I never thought COPS would be so exciting. Samaa, now that we've really gotten into the nitty gritty, I also want to ask you about This controversial statement made by Sultan al-Jabbar, the president of COP28, who also is the head of a state-owned oil company, what does his statement tell us about how climate change is viewed globally? For those of you who don't know, he basically said that there is no science indicating that a phase-out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 centigrade.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and so just to refresh our listeners' memory, uh, Sultan Al Jaber was really criticized for uh, having this almost climate denial position, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, he's the president of COP, but of course, there's an inherent conflict of interest, the fact that he's the head of the Abu, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's chairman of this organization called Muster. And, and so what Muster um, has been doing is really pushing towards uh, renewable energy. It's this future energy company as well and so his position is that we and, and the words he used are that we need to be pragmatic about this right and and so he is taking steps in the right direction for example with muster but uh, some people criticize that as just greenwashing the fact that mm-hmm. abu Dhabi national oil company still has been flaring out um despite the fact that it was not supposed to and has really not curbed its emissions um and is not taking this stance it needs to right um and, and so the words that he used were uh, the fact that uh, he said that we needed to be pragmatic about it and um we can't really uh, m- we cannot just eliminate fossil fuels from the conversation right um that's obviously something to be very watchful of when you're talking about the mm-hmm. fact that he's the president of, of cop 28 and at, on one hand he's been really saying that oh this is going to be the cop that is going to be the collective cop and we're going to be taking historical decisions And on some hands, there was a lot of action in the the first early days, like with the loss and damage fund being operationalized, the fact that he got a number of fossil fuel companies
0: to actually agree to some goals. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of action. Also, could you connect this to the absence of top leadership of the world's two biggest polluters at COP, aka China and the US? There was no one there from Joe Biden or or the Chinese president's uh, leadership.
1: Absolutely. So the optics are pretty bad, right? The mm-hmm. the fact that, of course, the U.S. sends its vice president and its climate, uh, uh, basically uh, the John Kerry, uh, who's basically the climate expert on this. But the problem remains if you're not sending your top leadership. The, the fact that um, Biden didn't show up, and uh, we we saw that, uh, and the same situation with China, uh, and the optics are bad right it's showing that that's not as important an issue um of course the flip side is with the geopolitical situation uh, what's happening in the middle east right now um the countries are specifically the us would argue that oh we have more important matters but of course cop 28 is the uh, place where uh, and they needed to have a strong position. And uh, it's in the numbers as well, right? Tuva, the fact of the matter remains that, for example, even with the loss and damage fund, the US committed peanuts uh, to this. So really the fact, even though Biden and historically the Democratic Party, they're the ones who were really in support of climate action historically. We expected this from, for example, President Trump, who was completely took out the US from Paris to begin with. Right. But we didn't really expect this from Biden. Uh, And so it's really, really disappointing. uh, The fact that the US is uh, completely showing the wrong optics. Uh, And even with China, uh, the it really weakens the G77 position, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because China has historically been supportive uh, of that block of developing countries being able to exert that kind of pressure. Then the whole climate justice movement is really uh, supported when China is there. And so that really weakens uh, the deal as well. The fact uh, that even if you reach an agreement, if you don't have the biggest stakeholders uh, giving the right signals, what does that mean Mm -hmm. for the agreement actually? Uh, being able to even follow through, you know, you could just have a piece of paper then and a weak implementation. So that remains problematic
0: oh my god how how are how are we going to achieve anything that's decided here
1: uh, I think uh, so let's take a step back and have a little uh, glimmer of hope as well so uh, <laughs> the, the fact remains uh, that uh, really the goal at COP is really to try to get the world to agree and we did see that agreement with the Paris Agreement in 2015 um, as long as the countries agree to be basically be able to do something move the needle that's good uh, if there's no agreement reached that would be really terrible
0: okay okay so i suppose like I, I can i can look at it like that there there is some light at the end of the tunnel uh, i can always hope and pray for a, a greener and brighter better future for the world and so maha we move on to my next question which is turkey wants to host cop 31 india has proposed to host cop 33 but there are concerns about potential conflicts of interest when significant polluters volunteer to host What are your thoughts on this? Also, why do countries like Pakistan face challenges in hosting and leading such summits? Absolutely. So uh,
1: coming to Pakistan first, uh, the COP is a huge event, right? Um, And for Pakistan, unfortunately, given our um, security concerns that often pop up, the fact that logistically uh, we have never hosted something of that scale. So I I think it's pretty early stages for, for Pakistan. We could potentially work towards it. But for example, looking at Dubai's example, they hosted a really successful Dubai Expo uh, before they were able to host COP, right? So, in terms of being able yeah. to host a conference of this scale, requires a lot of planning, a lot of uh, logistical operations to be in line. So, I think that's a goal that Pakistan should perhaps focus on if they want to. Um, but again, uh, it's really a headache for for a country like Pakistan to be able to focus on the logistics and the operations. Of yeah. course, you get the limelight. That's good, but uh, if uh, there's really a lot of work that needs to go into. Now, coming to India. Um, even though there are arch nemesis, but they are in a good position to be able to host COP. Uh, obviously what that means for countries like Pakistan uh, is the fact that uh, unfortunately, given the political situation, that would mean limiting our delegation uh, and not being able to get the right uh, visas and permits, which is another hassle, right? So historically uh, the political situation is something that you really need to steer away from uh, mm. when it comes to hosting a global event of this scale. So traditionally, as if you're as non-controversial as possible, then you're a good candidate for being able to host COP. Now, when there's a deadlock reached, uh, it always falls back to Bonn, Germany, which is the headquarters of the UNFCCC. So in case no agreement is reached on where COP should be hosted, there's always that backup option, which is nice and neutral. Uh, But obviously, um, the next in line, for example, with the next COP, Azerbaijan is in the uh, in the running, and uh, that's another very uh, fossil fuel heavy country, and so that would not be a good precedent if you have. And we have uh, the next COP is Brazil, um, after that, mm-hmm. uh, which is again had aligned itself with OPEC in COP 28. Uh, so that would not be a good um, thing for COP, uh, because you have this uh, successive fossil fuel uh, supportive countries, mm-hmm. uh, and so that would really dilute the impact of COP instead of, like, for example, um. A lot of people are calling COP28 this year as the biggest party of the year. People who are uh, who were historically uh, uh, big on climate activism, their voices were kind of dimmed, uh, and other voices were um, heard more. Uh, which really weakens the climate impact and what you actually want to achieve at COP, instead of it just being this, this gala that uh, countries mm. get limelight on and uh, you have celebrities showing up. So it really, um, from, a, from a climate policy perspective, um, are you achieving what you had set out to achieve? So that's problematic.
0: Maha, I really want to know how we can get rid of fossil fuels. Like there's so many bad things in the world. And I feel like if we just start with fossil fuels, it might just help us in the long run. So, Maha, we've talked a lot about COP, and I was wondering that if you could tell me a little, give me a little insight, in light of the work that you do, could you explain how transition and the promotion of gender equality are intrinsically linked, especially in the context of Pakistan? How can we improve women's opportunities to participate in and shape green economy by maybe by strengthening inclusive decision making so that the voices of feminists, the youth, the indigenous people and others are considered at a global level?
1: Absolutely. So one of the biggest challenges to human rights is what we call this triple planetary crisis, right, of basically climate change. Then we have pollution nature loss. Uh, and, and then the fact that really this climate change is impacting this broad range of rights, like health and development and the very right to life. So it's really this existential threat to mankind as we know it. And uh, the fact of the matter is that if you're a marginalized community and if you're vulnerable, you are going to be the most hit by by the impacts of climate change. And that means that if uh, your gender, your place of living, your livelihood, the entire socioeconomic landscape really affects uh, the situation. And, And so we see that women and girls, especially those who are belonging to marginalized areas who are vulnerable to the effects of climate change, And specifically, if they're uh, living in rural areas, if they belong to a minority, or if they're vulnerable in other situations, then they're going to be the worst hit. Uh, And so that really affects um, this uh, what we call this climate justice, right? What we mean by climate justice is the fact that we want this transition of whether it's moving away from fossil fuels and whether it's embracing and um, and really trying to meet our 1.5 degree goal. We really want it to be inclusive. And then we want um, there to be uh, adaptation efforts in order to protect vulnerable communities, specifically uh, linking this to our goals of gender equality. Equality, for example, we know that we, if you empower women and girls in the context of climate change, uh, studies have shown that uh, women make decisions that are pro-climate and in so many different ways. And really, the numbers speak for themselves. That there's a strong business case for women to be part of the conversation, to be mm-hmm. a part of the economy. And that plays out when it comes to climate change as well, because climate change is this, really this umbrella problem that affects all and permeates through all of these problems.
0: As we come to close this episode, I have one last question to ask. Looking ahead, what should be on Pakistan's climate agenda?
1: For Pakistan, uh, uh, the fact of the matter remains that we will really need to push more on loss and damage, right? That's a position that we took last year's COP. We were actually, um, uh, uh, we were chairing the G77 at that time. So we actually started this and we should see to the end that uh, the commitments that are um, present as part of the loss and damage fund, uh, they actually... um, uh, uh, meet the loss and damage that's actually predicted for the world to suffer so we really need to take strong action on loss and damage on greater climate finance and of course from a, a national point of view we really need to strengthen our own climate institutions uh, to be able to utilize the funds effectively whatever we do receive to be able to strengthen
0: our climate action uh, on a national level wow that was an interesting conversation lots to learn about the loss and damage fund how language inhibits actions for example the phase out and phase down fossil fuels and all while maha says that the future looks a little bleak i hope we get to meet our goals and one day pakistan will be green if you like this episode and want to listen to more please follow the bad lab on instagram twitter and facebook we're always looking for some more insights and more conversation so if you want to ask us something or give us some input please let us know thank you